stand with me once more, and let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 127. We have the privilege, what a privilege it is to read God's Word, to know that God's going to use it in our lives today as we listen to it and as we focus upon this portion of Scripture. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. It is in vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Please be seated. And let's pray. Father, we have just heard from your infallible, inerrant, perfect word. And we know that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And by the Spirit, it is able to penetrate to the division of spirit and soul. Lord, use it in our hearts today. We know you have some work to do. We need your work in our hearts and in our lives to Help us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Father, we we pray that Christ would be exalted as we preach and learn your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now I would just like to ask for all the children that are here, if you would stand up. Guys, just look around for a minute. Thank you so much for standing. You can sit back down now. Are they precious? Some of them are older than others, uh, much older. Uh, But uh, my thesis today is that children are meant to make you think about Jesus. How does this psalm make me think that? Well, look down at verse 3 for a moment. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Now, why would I say that that verse makes me think that children are meant to make us think about Jesus? Well, that's what this sermon's about. So, look at verse 1 with me. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Now, it's important for us to realize that this is a wisdom psalm. There's many different types of psalms in the Bible, and this is a wisdom psalm, and it's designed to teach us something. It's easy for us to think about a literal house when we think about this verse, unless the Lord builds the house. I mean, it could be that the Lord is, through the psalmist, wanting to teach us about building houses. You know, some of the best builders know that it's difficult to build a house and to have everything go okay, right? It's hard to beat the weather. Hard to overcome the laziness of workers sometimes. 
to live through unscrupulous subcontractors, to pass all those dreaded inspections and to have enough capital to finish the project. You need the Lord's help for all those things, amen? It could give us just a principle of wisdom even if it's not telling us that we need the Lord's help to build houses. Sometimes we might rightly apply this to everything that happens in our life. Any kind of project, any type of thing that you're trying to accomplish, that you would say, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it or who try to build it anyway. And that's true. Any venture the Lord's not behind, we're going to fail at. When Jesus was a child, though, Twice it says in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 40, something about his growing in wisdom. So this is a wisdom psalm intended to teach us something. And we see that Christ himself really is the embodiment of wisdom. In Luke 2, 40, it says, The child continued to grow and became strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And in verse 52, it says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And of him it was said in Luke chapter 11, verse 31, The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. It's Jesus. We're going to see who this psalm is written by. It's either written by Solomon or written to Solomon, which we'll take up in a moment. But all of the wisdom of the Old Testament, even all of Solomon's wisdom, which we see included in Psalms, included in Proverbs, and included in Ecclesiastes, was pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of all wisdom. Of Jesus, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are being called, that's us, Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So in the very fact that this is a wisdom psalm, it should make us think about Jesus. But perhaps there's even more here. If we consider the author of this psalm and where this fits in the wide sweep of redemptive history, the whole story of the Bible, then we might find more. Go up to the small little words above the psalm in most of your Bibles. We call this the, the superscription. Some people call it a little title. But it tells us something about the psalm. It says, it is a song of ascents of Solomon. Psalms 120 through 133 are a collection of psalms that have a purpose. They were psalms that were sung by the pilgrims, the journeyers, the travelers to Israel to go up to Jerusalem and the temple and these were the songs that they sang as they went. 
So these are considered the songs of ascent. To ascend up the hill and up the steps to the temple. This is the place where God prescribed the way that Israel would worship him. This is the place, the temple, where he would be treated as holy. This is the unique dwelling place of God among his people. And it is a place where sacrifices would be offered to appease the wrath of God so that a holy being like him could in some way dwell in their midst without them being consumed. So they cause us to look to the temple. The the pilgrims were always looking to the temple, always looking to Jerusalem as they would go up for these feasts that God designed for them to worship Him through. And so as they were going, we should look to the temple as we read these psalms. We should look to the ultimate fulfillment of the temple and the feasts, the sacrifices of Jesus Christ. They cause us to look to the fulfillment that Christ made in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is greater than Solomon, his wisdom. Jesus is greater than the temple. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, his enemies, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has spoken. We see in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, that when Jesus died, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. Jesus died and was rose again, and the access to the Holy of Holies was made possible for people who had faith in Jesus. In the book of Revelation, it says that the new heavens and the new earth in the new Jerusalem, in chapter 21, verse 22, speaking of this, John says, I saw no temple in it. The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So as the travelers were headed to Jerusalem, and as we sing these psalms today, we should be looking to what they were looking for. They were looking to the temple, which we see as ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who is the temple. And we see it fulfilled ultimately even more so in heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, where Christ the Lord will be the temple. He will be how we worship. So the, the Passover was, the, was one of these festivals that they would travel for. They would go there to eat the Passover, which symbolized the redemption of the people out of slavery in Egypt. The exodus, it is called. When Israel was in bondage and slavery there, 
they cried out to God and God answered and he sent Moses and he sent plagues upon Egypt because Pharaoh would not let their people go. And so finally, God sent the plague of death upon the firstborns. And he told Israel that they would be protected if they would take a Passover lamb and eat this feast in a certain way he prescribed, and then they would sacrifice the the lamb. They would kill the lamb, and they would spread its blood over the lintel of the door and on the doorposts. And when the death angel came to take the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborns of Israel who had the blood on their doors would be spared. So these psalms, as they're going up to this feast of Passover, they're remembering that God has delivered them. They're going and looking for the Passover to take place. The the lamb also would be sacrificed for the Day of Atonement. And all of this, once again, causes us to look to Christ. He is our Passover 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So we see that the fact that this wisdom psalm teaches us wisdom and points us to Christ who is wisdom. That this collection of songs are ascent songs and point us to the temple and Christ who is the ultimate temple. The author of this psalm also points us in a certain direction. Up there in those little words, Song of Ascents, but also it says that it is of Solomon. It also could be translated to Solomon. There's a little ambiguity in the Hebrew. It's either to Solomon or of Solomon. If it's of Solomon, it would have been written by Solomon. If it is to Solomon, it would be, have, have been written perhaps by his father David to his son Solomon. The first significance of this would be that both David and Solomon had engaged in vast building projects. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Then Hiram... King of Tyre sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And Solomon, he built a palace, he built fortifications, seaports, a water system, many whole cities. But most significant was that Solomon built a temple. He built a house for the Lord. And again, we've already pointed out that the temple points us to Jesus Christ. But all of that pales, all this building pales in comparison to what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David there felt bad that he had built himself a palace. He said, I'm dwelling in this amazing house But the Lord's tabernacle remains in a tent. So he wants to build God a house, but God tells him that he would not be the one to build him a house. It would be Solomon who would build the temple. Instead, God says that I will build you a house, David. 
And he didn't mean a building. In 2 Samuel verse 11, the Lord declares to you, Saul, uh, David, that the Lord will make a house for you. In verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. He's telling him that he's going to have a dynasty. He's going to have a, a house of descendants. The house of David. And he says that this will be established forever. So David's going to be dependent on the Lord. Unless the Lord builds his house, they would labor in vain if they try to build it. Verse 25, it says, Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever. And do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. <clears throat> and may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of heaven, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may come, continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, our God, have spoken, and with your blessing may the house of your servant be blessed forever. So that's how David responds to the fact that the Lord says, I will build you a house. So we can see the significance of the writer even. David and Solomon have a connection. And if David's writing this to Solomon, you can see the, how he's passing this on. Unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. If the Lord doesn't build it. Now we said that this is a song for people going to Jerusalem. It also says in, verse, in the second half of the, the, next, the, the verse, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It's the second half of verse 1. So they're headed to Jerusalem. <clears throat> they're singing about the Lord building a house. <clears throat> and we have seen that that points to the temple. And it points to uh, David's dynasty. <clears throat> But then he says, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. This isn't talking about some random city as they're headed to Jerusalem, is it? David had captured Jebus from the Jebusites, and he renamed it Jerusalem, which means city of peace. Jerusalem is one of the oldest cities in the world. <clears throat> In its long history, Jerusalem has been attacked 52 times. It was captured and recaptured 42 times. And it was destroyed twice. So no mere man can protect Jerusalem. So it's valuable 
to know that as they are headed up to Jerusalem singing these songs, that they understand that the Lord alone can build and keep this city. The Israelites did not know that God was going to build an eternal, impregnable, impenetrable city. In Hebrews chapters 11 and 12, Jerusalem is referred to here as the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, a heavenly one that God has prepared for them. It is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, a lasting city which is to come. In the book of Revelation, we see the city surrounded by Satan's forces. Gog and Magog are nations he has deceived and gathered for war. And the number of them, it says, is as the sand of the seashore. And they surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet also are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The Lord is the one who can protect the city. In Revelation 21, it describes the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth with a beautiful description. You ought to read it sometime. It talks about all the stones, all the, the beautiful description of uh, its building material. So, if the Lord is going to build the house of David, if the Lord is going to protect the city of Jerusalem, he's going to have to provide for its people as well. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 127. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he, who, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. I said that Jerusalem was attacked. Well, it was also besieged 22 times. And at these times, a city would be surrounded and it would be cut off from all the food sources and the water and its inhabitants would begin to thirst and starve and diseases would begin to kill them. But God promised in Amos chapter 9 that he would one day make the mountains drip with sweet wine. They would also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make their gardens and eat their fruit. And in Jeremiah 31, it says that their work will be rewarded. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd and their life will be like a watered garden and they will never languish again. There was another feast through which or for which they would go singing these songs to Jerusalem. It's called the Feast of Pentecost. It's also called in the Old Testament, Exodus 23, 16, the Feast of the Harvest. It's the Feast of the First Fruits in Numbers 28, 26. These first fruits, these, these, this produce... The fruit of agriculture and hard work would be gathered as a result of those who labor. They would 
gather after the harvest all of these into storehouses. It's also called the Feast of Weeks in Exodus 34, 22. And this name comes from seven weeks plus one day, which are 50 days that, that they counted to determine when to celebrate this festival. That's in Leviticus 23, 16. So in the New Testament, the Greek word for this festival is called Pentecost, which means 50th. It's a time of seeking God's blessing, of seeking God's favor over their labors to be able to provide food for their families for the next year. Of course, we know Pentecost to be the time when, no surprise, God would pour out His Spirit to provide for His work to bring salvation to the nations through His church in Acts chapter 2. See, these, these Israelites, they were... They were going forth to Jerusalem each year with this, what we call, antecedent theology. This knowledge that would be part of their culture, which would be part of their very life, involving and including the Abrahamic covenant. There were three parts to the Abrahamic covenant. There was the land, the seed, or the descendants, and the blessing. And the blessing included this plenteous, bountiful blessing of all of their provisions for life. So as they approach Jerusalem, there's, there's no wonder that they look to the Lord to provide for them. Only the Lord could protect the city. Only the Lord could build a house. Only the Lord could bless their labors. There's the land, there's the blessing, but there's also the seed, descendants. So in verses 3 through 5, they are singing as they're traveling, and they're looking to the Lord for children. Look at verse 3. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. They were dependent, absolutely dependent upon the Lord to open or close the womb. The Lord needed to provide them with sons to be their army, to defend them from their enemies. Otherwise, what is this? Speaking with their enemies in the gate. These are people coming to negotiate terms of, of uh, surrender because they have besieged the city. But those that had many descendants, they had many sons, they had armies, they would not be ashamed. They would be able to answer with force. The problem is, that they depended upon the Lord for these. It would be important for their survival as a people to have children. Now, it's interesting as we follow all of the story of salvation history in the Scriptures, and we see this nestled in the middle, we look back and we see that they would have understood the Abrahamic covenant, that part of that was that Abraham would have descendants. 
He was promised that he would have descendants as many as the sands on the seashore, which we understand being a a near beach community, right? Or the stars in the sky. You stargazers, there's a lot there, isn't there? And the problem, though, is that throughout the history of conception, it has been God's prerogative. As far back as Genesis, you have Adam and Eve. They sinned. They were expelled from the garden. The answer to this would be that God promised a redeemer. He promised that the woman would have a child who would crush the head of the serpent, who we learn in the book of Revelation is the devil. That he would be the enemy of our souls that would need to be defeated. But there's always something that makes this difficult from a human perspective. As far back as Adam and Eve, they were to be fruitful and multiply. Having babies, though, was going to get harder. After they were expelled from the garden and the curse was brought upon them, work was going to be harder for Adam. But having babies, we see as part of the curse, was going to have increased painful labor. Genesis 3.15. But God would make it so that there would still be descendants and that there would be the child that would eventually be born that would crush the head of of the serpent. It says to the wife, your desire will be for your husband. She's still going to have this romantic attraction and desire for her husband. And he shall have authority or rule over you. So guess what? They're still going to have babies. And Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1 It says, now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. See, God is going to help them to have children. Abraham was promised all these descendants as well, part of the the covenant with Abraham, but his wife Sarah is barren, isn't she? You know the story? And they're at an old age, and they're still receiving this promise year after year. She's in her 90s, and God made her to conceive finally. She gave birth to Isaac. Isaac's wife Rebecca was barren, but the Lord promised descendants. And then eventually he opened her womb and she conceived. Jacob was born. Jacob's wife Rachel was barren, but it says that the Lord opened her womb. In a time when Israel needed a deliverer, during the time of the judges and the Philistines were oppressing and controlling them, the wife of Manoah was barren. But the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to this mighty deliverer, Samson. 
who delivered them from the Philistines. Then we have Hannah, the wife of Elkanah. She was greatly distressed and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. See how time and time again the Lord gives a child. Samuel became a priest and a prophet in Israel. Now remember that earlier we had said that God had promised King David that he would have a descendant on the throne forever. Well, even this story was fraught with difficulty, isn't it? Because perhaps you remember that he committed adultery with a a lady named Bathsheba and she had a child and the child died. But the Lord then gave them another child named Solomon. And he's either the recipient or the author of this psalm. When we get to the New Testament, we find a woman named Elizabeth. And she too was barren. She was advanced in years. But her husband Zacharias was a a priest in the temple. And one day this happened, Luke chapter 1 verse 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the Spirit, and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. A barren woman, appearance of an angel, God granting life. And she has a child who becomes the forerunner of the great king and his kingdom. Jesus Christ. Finally, we have in this tale of a long string of miraculous conceptions a woman named Mary. Now, Mary was a virgin. And it says in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1 now in the sixth month, verse 26, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph 
of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation is this. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. For his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. See how that psalm fits in there? It's just pointing us to Christ. It's pointing us to the fulfillment. And all of the worshipers were always going to Jerusalem just singing this song. Did you catch he would be over the house? He's the descendant of David. And hopefully you know the rest of the story. We hear this at Christmas time in Matthew chapter 1. And an angel appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. See, all of this barrenness was leading up to the gift of a child. The son of God, the son of David, the Savior, the one whose name means God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus means Yahweh saves. It all pointed to him. This baby Jesus would be the seed of the woman, Eve, who would crush the serpent's head, defeating Satan. He would be the descendant of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Rachel, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He would be the mighty deliverer like Samson, as Zacharias calls Jesus the horn of salvation in Luke chapter 1, verse 69. And the horn was representative of the powerful army or mighty general. He would be the ultimate prophet like Samuel. And he would be the priest like Samuel, the child of Hannah. He would be the royal, eternal, dynastic ruler, a descendant of David and Bathsheba. John the Baptist, the, the child of Elizabeth, would go before him and announce the coming of the king and his kingdom. Then Jesus would be born of the Virgin Mary and would come forth and fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 9-6. Listen to this. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. 
and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. With prophecies such as that, with fulfillment looked forward to such as these, it is no wonder that God would inspire a psalm to be sung every year and at every festival, every single time they made a trip to Jerusalem that says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Jesus, of course, would then live a perfect life. He would fulfill the whole law of Moses that they fell short of all the time. He would heal many. He would cast out demons. He would heal deformities and diseases. He would fulfill everything that was prophesied about the Messiah. And he would start to make disciples. He would be betrayed. He would be arrested, unjustly tried. He would be crucified. He would die. And in so doing, he would pay the penalty for our sins. And he would give himself as a sacrifice that would be that final atonement, the day of the Lord. No, no longer would they have to sing the songs going to Jerusalem. No longer would they have to look for the Passover lamb. No longer would they have to look for atonement, the propitiation of their sins. Those who believe in him shall be saved from the penalty of sin and have eternal life. And he ascended into heaven at the right hand of the throne of God's glory. And he is a ruler. And he is our great high priest like Samuel. And he makes supplications and intercessions to the Father on our behalf. And he is there to give us mercy and grace in our times of need. I begin this sermon by telling you that children are made, meant to make us think about Jesus. It's true that children are a gift of the Lord. Every child is. Let them make you think about Jesus. Every child is like Psalm 139 says, fearfully and wonderfully made by the Creator, just like Jesus. Jesus made much of children in his ministry. He used children to teach us humility. Once his disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In Matthew 18, 1-5, it says that he called a little child to him. Remember, we had the children stand a moment ago. They are object lessons for us. He placed the child among them and he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me. Mark chapter 10 verse 13 it says, They were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the little children 
to come to me. But do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Let me give you three applications for this. First of all, our children need to be brought to Jesus. We need as a church to do whatever we can to encourage and equip parents. And parents, you need to take responsibility to keep doing just as this psalm does and keep pointing them to Jesus. And we as a church need to come around parents. We need to help them to point their children to Jesus. And we need as a church to also point them to Jesus. That's the second application. We need to be so excited about having children to point to Jesus and having children that remind us of Jesus that we would want to serve them. And of course, a very practical way of doing that is to serve in our children's ministries. The children's ministry ought to have people having to be turned away because everybody wants to get in there and point children to Jesus. Let me ask you, would you serve? Will you point children to Jesus? Finally, you need Jesus. Every single one of us here need to be continually in their lives pointing to Jesus, looking to Jesus, needing to be brought ourselves to Jesus for his blessing. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I appeal to you, I beg of you, come to Jesus. Isn't the Bible just amazing in the sweep of all of its grandeur and glory written by so many different people over such a long, vast time, and yet it has this interwoven strand of redemption from first to last, pointing, last pointing to Jesus. And it tells us that you have sinned and you need a Savior. You need to believe in Him, that He is all that we have talked about today. Come to Him today. Let's pray. Lord God, what a, an amazing God you are. Your Holy Spirit is phenomenal in putting together this fabulous, miraculous word that would show us our need for Christ. Help us, Lord, to sing songs such as these that we've studied, that we would keep looking to Christ, that we would point others to Christ, that people would come to Christ. Lord, do your work through us and through your word. We do pray that we would value children, that 
we would think about all you have done to gift us with children that remind us of the ultimate gift of a child, Jesus Christ. Help the parents, Lord. Unless you do it, it can't be done. Lord, we're dependent upon you. Help us to help each other. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.